We'll now have a reading from God's word. Matthew 5, verses 1 through 10. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, well, again, welcome. Uh, My name is Aaron. I'm one of the elders here at Trailhead, and it is uh, my privilege always to be able to to share with you, to look into God's Word together. And uh, specifically, this week, we're continuing our our series uh, over the summer on the Sermon on the Mount. This is Jesus' sermon that we find in the book of Matthew in chapters 5 through 7. We started talking about this last week, um, and what we saw last week, we just kind of introduced the sermon. What we saw is that this is really early on in Jesus' ministry. Um, but he's, he's started gaining a following. People are listening to him. And specifically, what Matthew tells us, there's kind of two groups of people. Um, there's, and he distinguishes them as Jesus' disciples and the crowd. And the disciples are the people who are really bought in. They're the people who are, are listening. And what we're going to see today, they're the people who are being shaped by what Jesus is teaching. They're his followers. And then the crowd is the, the word that, that Matthew uses to describe kind of everybody else who's there, and they're interested and they're listening. And what we saw last week, they understand and recognize in Jesus' teaching something different, something distinctive, something, the word that Matthew uses at the end of the sermon to describe all of this, something authoritative. That the crowd, when they hear Jesus' teaching, they hear within him a, a level of authority an ability to speak that isn't borrowed from or referencing other sources, that, that Jesus speaks with an authority all his own. Because of who he is, because of his nature as God in flesh, as the author of all of humanity, all of the world, everything here, that he understands, that Jesus understands and speaks from a place that he knows how all of this works. And then when he speaks, he doesn't need affirmation from anybody else or anything else. That what he says is just true because he says it. He says it because it's true, because he just knows what is true. In fact, we define truth based on what Jesus says is true. And and the crowd hears Jesus speaking and they recognize this authority in him. Even though, and this is what kind of where we ended last week and where we're going to kind of pick up this week, Even when what Jesus says goes against what to us might seem normal or rational. That that we have within our minds, we have a construction, we have an idea, we have an understanding of how the world works. And it's been established and it's been built up over time, partly from within ourselves, we just have our own kind of understanding, and it's partly from our culture and our upbringing, all these different aspects of who we are that add into how we see the world. And then Jesus speaks, and regardless of whether we agree with him or not, what he says is true. 
And what we said last week and what we're going to start to see this week is oftentimes what Jesus says authoritatively goes hard against the grain of what we believe. That the way our understanding and our construction of the world, the way things ought to, in our minds, ought to work, Jesus speaks and we're like, ah, I'm not sure about that, but, but they heard, the crowd heard, the disciples saw, and were beginning to believe and be shaped by that Jesus doesn't need our agreement to be true. He doesn't need our affirmation for what he says to be meaningful. It just is. So the question becomes for us not, do we, do we go with Jesus because we agree with him? The question becomes, how do we shape our minds or change our beliefs or our attitudes or our behaviors based on what he has said? Because what he has said is true, whether we agree with it or not. And so as we get into the actual, so last week we talked about all that and we saw that in kind of this bookends around the sermon. We didn't actually get into anything Jesus said last week. And so that's where we're going this week. And he starts off and he introduces the whole thing. Um, and verse 2 says, he opened his mouth and he taught them saying, and then the first word in verse 3 um, is a Greek word because Matthew who wrote this down, he wrote originally in Greek. It's been translated in English. And the first word that Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount is this Greek word, makarios. Okay, I practiced all week to say that. And I think I, I, I think that was pretty close. Makarios. Here it is. Okay. So if you're like, if you speak Greek, Greek scholar, and I just butchered that, just forgive. Okay. Just give me, um, you can tell me later and that'd be great. Um, but I think it's pronounced makarios. Okay. Um, here's, here's what this is. Makarios is a word that is very, very hard to translate into English. Because there's no single English word that is like a direct, exact translation of this word. So different Bibles translated in different ways, different translations of the Bible. If, um, you know, what Sandy read, what we are looking at, is the ESV uses the word blessed. There are other translations that use the word happy. There's all these different ways to translate it. None of them exactly fully capture the meaning of this word. Blessed, when you hear the word blessed, if you're like me, most of you have this very kind of theological or um, honestly kind of this Instagram kind of a what it means to be hashtag blessed kind of a thing, right? And it's like, okay, it's like, uh, you know, this it's a very churchy word, right? It's a word that we use to say, honestly, most people use it to, to brag about their lives and then say hashtag blessed, like look at me, how great I am. Um, the word happy, too, the word happy kind of has... Um, maybe more of a psychological, that's how I feel. Um, when we, what we're going to see with Makarios is, Makarios isn't how you feel. And so using the word happy might not quite be right. Um, happy is, is, you know, that momentary feeling of like that euphoria that we have. That we, we like it, we want it. And being blessed is good things, right? But Makarios is more than that. Okay, I think, and so I'm trying to think through, like, what's the best word to, way to define this word? And here's, I think, maybe what's going to be most helpful for us. Okay, and as we read through this passage today, we really need to understand what this word means, because Jesus is basing, like, this entire passage around this idea of what it looks like to be this. So what is this? You know how, in your life, you have a conception of there's something, there's this idea, or maybe a better way to say this ideal of what life could be. Of, of 
partly a feeling, but also just a, a state of being that you want to be in. Right? It's that idea, it's, it's that thing that all of us want something out of life. And we have in our mind an idea of what that should look like. What a good life would be. And, and, and we want that, and we feel a longing for that, and we recognize and we look around the world and we see that the world is not the way it should be. Our lives aren't always the way we think they should be, but we know there's something else, something better, something more. That's kind of the idea of what Makarios is. Not the longing for it, but the idea of being there, of achieving that, of having that, of having a life that is good where things are right, where things are the way they are supposed to be. Because we all have that idea. We all want that. We all pursue that. We, we structure our lives around, and we have in our minds a conception of how to get there. And all of us have in our minds, all of us have in our hearts, an idea of what it would look like and how we can get to that place. Right? And our lives, in a sense, to the extent that we can control or dictate or determine what goes on in our lives, what we're trying to control or move towards or steer towards is, is this, it's makarios. We want to get there. And so the choices we make, the, the paths we take, are all us leading ourselves as best as we can towards makarios. And for some of us, that's we think that the best way to get there is through our career and through achievement. And if we can reach a certain level of achievement and, and either have, you know, make a certain salary or have a certain title or have people look at us in a certain way. And then we believe that if we get there, if people look at us and they say when we walk by, they, oh, that's that successful guy. That's that respectable woman. That's the person I look up to. Then to us, that would be Makarios. And so we're driving our lives to get there. For others, it's, it's family. It's the idea of relationships because of the affirmation and the love that we could get from those people. And so we, we structure our lives around creating and sustaining a certain family structure. And if we can just get our family to look a certain way, to be a certain way, to say the right things to us and to tell us how much they love us, then we would have makarios. And, and we structure our lives and try to get our lives there. Or we look and we say, if I can present a certain image, if I can make others believe that I am a certain way, that I, that I have a certain level of style or a certain level of, um, cool or whatever the word might be, then I could have Makarios because people would respect me, they would like me, they would give me affirmation. We're all trying to get to Makarios in different ways. And what Jesus says here, through this passage and the, the, the scriptures we're gonna look at this morning is that that desire for satisfaction that we have, that desire for, for a flourishing, for a fullness of life, that desire is a good thing. And it is available. And he's saying to his, and, and again, this is, there's two audiences and he's speaking specifically to his disciples. That is there and it is possible and it is available. But it doesn't look like what you think it looks like. That true blessing, or true happiness, or true whatever word you want to use, satisfaction, is available to followers of Jesus. But it will not look like 
what you have, the conception you have in your mind of what it looks like. And getting there is not the path that we, most of us, take to get there. You've probably heard, and if you have a Bible and you're looking at this scripture and it has little headings, then probably the heading over this passage in your Bible is the word Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes, you've probably heard, um, there's a very high likelihood you've heard of this before. Beatitude, the word Beatitude, um, comes from a Latin word that means blessed are. So it kind of goes with the idea of blessings. Um, and so I want to look at these Beatitudes today. These are Jesus' teachings on what it looks like to have makarios, to have a life that is full and satisfying, to have, for lack of a better phrase, the good life. Two things that I want you to notice as we go into this. Number one, Jesus' description of what this looks like, this good life, goes so hard against our internal sense of what makes us happy. Like you want to talk about saying Jesus' teaching is not always in line with what we believe. This right off the bat. Like if we ask people, how can you be happy? This is not the answer most of us are going to give. This is not the answer our culture teaches. This is not, this is not what our conception of successful people in our culture look like. And for most of us, and we'll come back to this, for most of us, when we look at other people that we want to emulate, the people we want to follow, this is not what those people usually look like. The second thing, and so we'll see that as we go through this, but the second thing I want you to notice as we go through this, this is super important, very, very important. And and if we don't catch this, I think we'll go in a completely opposite direction with these uh, nine, ten verses. This section is not a formula from Jesus of what we need to do to be fulfilled. Okay, This passage, as we go through these verses, these Beatitudes, these are not Jesus' instructions on how to have a good life. These are not Jesus' instructions on how to enter into the kingdom of heaven. These are not Jesus' instructions on what you have to do. You do these things and then you will be happy. You do these things and you will be blessed. That's not what this is. Okay, This is Jesus talking about what this looks like. The how-to is intrinsic and it's woven in and we're going to see it as we go through it. But don't get in your head, please, 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 don't listen to this this morning and say, oh, here it is, a checklist. This is how I'm going to be happy in life. I'm going to do these things. And right off the bat, you see it, because in verse 3, like the very first thing he says, is not a, it's not a checklist item. Blessed are the poor in spirit. How do you do that? First, what does that even mean? But when we hear what it means, it's not something you can just do. Right? So this is not, you're gonna see, we're gonna see, this is not a list of like, I'm gonna resolve to be more this, 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 and this. Rather, this is the work that the Holy Spirit does within us as we follow Jesus. As we become disciples of Him, followers of Him, then He works these things in us. And this is how he transforms us. Okay, so like, 
blessed are the poor in spirit. What does poor in spirit mean, first of all? It means um, to recognize, to be poor in spirit means to recognize our own lack of ability. Right? I mean, if you think through poverty, what is poverty? It's not just not having financial resources. Poverty is the idea of not having the resources necessary to function, to survive, to provide for yourself or for your family. To be poor in spirit means that you recognize that within yourself, you don't have the necessary resources to be, I mean, basically anything. But especially as it comes to the idea of being successful or being happy or being uh, righteous, the word we're going to look at later on. When I'm poor in spirit, it means I look inside myself and I see that's not there. And I can't do it. It's similar to, maybe not in exact correlation to the idea of humility. It's recognizing, when I look at myself, that I don't have what it takes. That I can't do whatever I set my mind to. It's the exact opposite of what we try to teach over and over and over in our culture, right? What is the main message we want to teach? Again, coming from an educational background, and I think through like talking to kids, and what do we always want to teach kids? You can be anything you want to be. You can do it. Just believe in yourself. And if you believe hard enough, if you believe it, you can achieve it. You just, you have what it takes. You are good enough. And to be poor in spirit means that you look at yourself and you say, no, I'm not. Like, I can believe in all I want, and I can work all I want, and I can have all the dreams and desires, and I can go for it with all the gusto I have, and I'm not enough. Now, this is not saying that we should hate ourselves, okay? And this is not, Jesus is not saying blessed are those who, like, look at themselves in the mirror and despise what they see. That's not what it means, okay? What it means is a recognition that no matter what your best efforts are, they will always come up short. It's a place of getting to, it's, it's, it's getting to the place where you say, on my own, I just don't have the ability. I have to look somewhere else, someone else. The only way I can survive, the only way I can make it is to be rescued by someone else. And so what Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does it mean to, to be in the kingdom of heaven? It means for Jesus, we said this last week, it means for Jesus to be the king of your life, to be reigning in your life. And how does that happen? How do you have that? How do you become a part of the kingdom of heaven? It's to recognize that you can't be on your own the king of your life. That you can't rule your life. You don't have the ability. You don't have the resources. You're not good enough. And so you're going to lay your life down and give it over to the one who can. The true and worthy king. You have to be poor in spirit to be willing to let Jesus reign in your life. So Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's connected very much to verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. What does it mean to mourn? Is to, again, recognize. To recognize the brokenness, both internally and externally in this world. To look at how broken our world is, how broken we ourselves are. And to not say, but it's going to be okay. I'm okay, and you're okay, and I'm just going to have a positive attitude. I'm going to always look on the bright side. To mourn means to look at it and to say, 
who I am and what I see around me is not good. It's broken, it's evil, and I desperately need someone to rescue me. Now again, this isn't a to-do list because that kind of mourning and that kind of being poor in spirit, it almost always comes from a very difficult place, from something very hard happening in your life. This is, and I'm sorry, I keep referencing the idea of teaching kids, but this is very difficult to teach to children. Um, Not all children. Some children have had very traumatic lives and gone through very difficult things, but there are a lot of kids who we, because this is, I mean, very much our desire as parents or as teachers or whatever is to protect kids. And to shield them from difficulties. And so there are a lot of kids that I've had the experience of trying to talk to kids, you know, in a Christian school. And I'm like trying to get them to understand what God's grace looks like. And trying to understand how good God's grace is. But until you've come to a place in your life where you feel like life has crushed you down. Where you have been broken beyond your own ability to fix or repair yourself. You have to get to that place to be able to look up and say, I desperately need something I don't deserve. And when you get to that place and then God meets you in that place, when you understand the comfort that Jesus is referencing in verse 4 of getting to a place where you completely are totally spiritually bankrupt and you recognize it, And all you can do is mourn because there's no positive spin you can put on it. And you get to that place and you feel and you see and you meet Jesus there. Then the comfort, the goodness, the overwhelming, just the best word you could use there is this, makarios. This feeling of, I could never do this on my own. I am broken. The world is broken. But Jesus loves me. And he comes to me in his grace in spite of my brokenness. That's not something you can just choose to do. And it's not easy. We recognize the depth of our own depravity. And then we feel the comfort of Jesus rescuing us, bringing us into his kingdom, when we recognize that none of that is us, it will lead us naturally to verse 5, blessed are the meek. What does it mean to be meek? To be meek means that we look at the world and we say, look, I'm I'm not so amazing and awesome and wonderful. I don't deserve anything. And so I'm not going to interact with the world out of a sense of entitlement. That I deserve good things and you better give them to me or else I'm going to take them by force. Meekness meekness is this idea that not that I'm weak and I'm going to be trampled over, but that I know and recognize I'm, I don't deserve anything. Everything I have is a gift. And so I'm not going to go to you and demand that you treat me in a certain way. I'm not going to go to you with arrogance 
and say, you need to be more like me. You need to shape up and get things in line. And you, need to, you need to approach the world the way I approach the world because I have everything figured out. Meekness is, look, I'm a wreck. I'm a mess. But Jesus loves me and he's rescued me. He comforts me. I'm a child of him. And Jesus' promise on that when he says in verse 5, blessed are the meek, that out of that meekness, we will inherit the earth. I think the word inherit is really key there. To inherit something means you receive something, not because you deserve it. <laughs> when you inherit something, you receive something, not because you work for it, but because your parents worked for it. How do we inherit the earth? Because we're children of the king. We don't get good things, blessings, if that's the word you want to use, makarios. We don't get that because we go out and make it happen. If God is the ruler of everything, if he's the king of everything, then the only way to receive anything is to receive it from him. Not to go out and take it from others. Look, again, our culture, our world, us, ourselves, we want to platform and put up as, as great the people who are the most aggressive. Who are the most driven. The most apt to go out and get what they want. And, and, and we idolize these people and we, we listen to them and we t- ask them to tell us their secrets of success. How do I go out and get what I want? And the answer is never meekness. Because meekness says you inherit from your father, God, the good things. What you truly want out of life. But the good things that he's talking about inheriting are not what the good things that our culture puts out as what will make us happy, right? Like, when it says, the meek, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth, it's not talking about financial success or material success. It's not talking about becoming famous. It's not talking about having the respect of everyone in the world. And those are the things we go out and fight for. Those are the things that we want to become winners to get and achieve. Those are the things that we feel like we have to crush our opponents to make sure that we have what we want. It's connected to verse 9. I'm going to skip ahead. We'll, we'll hit all of them, but I, I just see the connection. In verse 9, Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. If our whole goal and our whole focus is to win, if victory is all that matters, then being a peacemaker is absolute failure. To be a peacemaker means to go out and to ask how you can end conflicts. Not end conflicts by winning them. Not by owning your opponent. Not by crushing down those who stand in your way. That's not making peace. Rather, what Jesus is saying is those who seek because their meekness tells them that on their own, they're not going to earn or get or achieve anything. That they're just trusting in their Father, Jesus. That when you're a peacemaker, verse 9 says, you'll be called the Son of God. The sons of God are the ones who can look 
at conflict and say, I don't have to engage. Because on my own, I'm going to lose anyway. It reminds me of the story. I've, I've told this story before, but I think it's been quite a while, so I'm banking on the fact that a lot of you weren't at Trailhead yet. So um, many, many years ago, a friend of mine, it's not my story. I always feel bad. I always want to take these stories and pretend they're mine, but that's so, it would be so dishonest. Um, but again, you wouldn't know. Oh, okay, never mind. Um, so a friend of mine told this story. He said he was at the beach with his son. His son was like three years old, and he had a truck, and he's playing in the sand with his truck. And this bigger kid, like six or seven-year-old kid, comes over. And he takes his son's truck from him. And he, and he looks at his son, and he goes, Mine! And he said his son, who again, he's like three years old, and he looks at this much bigger kid, and he kind of starts to like tear up a little bit. And he's like, what am I going to do? And then he looks over and he sees his dad, my friend. And he reaches over and he grabs the truck and he runs back and he sits on his dad's lap. And then he looks over at the other kid and he says, mine. (laughs) Because when we look at the world and we say, it's not about me, right? If the three-year-old gets in the fight with the seven-year-old, it's over. There's no victory there. But if we can trust, if we can believe that our success, our failure, our happiness, our inheritance is not based on our own strength and our own might, it's based on our Father, then we can just rest. Then we don't have to fight. We don't have to become culture warriors. We don't have to engage everything we see that we disagree with. We don't have to try to win every argument. We can just trust that we're children of the king and that he's in charge. He already won. We don't have to fight a fight that he's already been victorious in. We can make peace. We can hold our our most deeply held beliefs with an open hand saying, because I trust that Jesus is the king over all of this, I don't have to be afraid when I feel threatened by your disagreements. I can just rest in him. If we have a trust in who Jesus is and what he's done for us, it transforms us. What Jesus is talking about here is a transformation not just of what we do, but of who we are. It's internal. Look at verses 6 and verse 8 on this. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Both of these are talking about something that's very much an internal change in us. What we desire, what our heart longs for. To hunger and thirst for something means to have that deepest desire in our hearts. And those who have been transformed... By Jesus, those who are truly following after him, their hunger, their thirst, their desire is for righteousness. Now, righteousness can become a difficult word. There are actually multiple or or, or, uh, nuanced meaning to the word righteousness. It means multiple things at the same time, but it means all of them. Okay, Righteousness means both our own personal behavior. It's our standing before God. It's our sense of being right. Right, which we want to be right. We want to do what's right. And so righteousness means that. 
It also means God's justice in the world. Righteousness is God doing what is right, what is good, what is just. All of it has to do with the world being made right, with us and the world around us being put to the way it should be. There's not a conflict between those two. And sometimes people will will try to argue what kind of righteousness Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about both. That we desire both to live right before God and also to see the world around us put right, to be just. Not just for ourselves, but for everyone. To hunger and thirst for that means that our deepest desire is not for ourselves to be famous. It's not for ourselves to be successful. It means that our deepest desire is for us to do and to be a part of doing what is right in the world. And to go along with that, in verse 8, to have a pure heart, again, pure means clean, it also means single-minded and focused. Clean, again, not because of our own efforts. We don't clean ourselves. Right? You can't purify your heart. Your heart is, your heart is dirty. Your heart is stained. Your desires, your hungering and thirsting on your own does not lean towards righteousness. It doesn't run towards cleansing. The only way to be clean, the only way to be righteous is to be cleansed by Jesus. The only way to have righteousness is to have Jesus' righteousness Because he's the only one who ever lived fully right before God. Whoever fully fulfilled all of God's commandments. The only way to be righteous, the only way to be clean, the only way to have a pure heart is to have that given to us by Jesus. All of this points back to the gospel. All of this points to an understanding that on our own, We cannot be, we cannot do those things which would give us satisfaction in life. But Jesus did. And in His mercy for us, which is verse 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. His mercy for us. He lived a fully righteous life. And yet took the punishment that we deserved. And if we trust in Him, And if we trust in his sacrifice, then he will, and he promises to clean our hearts. He promises to give us his righteousness. So that instead of being children, we saw this a couple weeks ago in in the book of Ephesians, instead of being the children of wrath that we were born to be, instead of the punishment that we deserve, we become children of God. That we become citizens of of the kingdom of heaven. Not because of anything we've done. That wouldn't be mercy. But solely because of his love for us. And the natural outflow of that in verse 7 is that we will be merciful. Because when we recognize in our meekness the good gifts he's given to us and our total lack of deserving of any of those good gifts, when we see that, then our What will become our natural reaction will be to interact with others with that same kind of mercy. Now, if that's true, 
If, if this is a description of what it means to be one of Jesus' disciples, if these blessings that he's describing, this makarios, this, this state of being, is ours through Jesus, not on our own, not because of what we do, but because he's given it to us, then here's the question, why don't we always feel like that? Why, for those of us who would call ourselves believers, who would say we trust in and have trusted in and are trusting in his sacrifice for us, why don't we feel like this is true in our lives? Why do we still feel a pull towards a different life, a different type of makarios, a different definition of what it means to be successful or to be happy? Why don't we naturally order? Why don't I look at my own life and constantly see myself marked by meekness, by hungering and thirsting for righteousness, by being merciful, by being pure? Why don't I see that in my life day by day? Here's the thing we have to understand. And this goes back to the word that we kind of started all of this with. Discipleship, being discipled is something that is constantly happening in our lives. We are always, we are constantly being discipled. Someone is trying to influence you. And not someone, many, many, many someones. Now, I'm, I'm kind of an old man. Okay, um, I actually, uh, this Tuesday, I'm going to be turning 40. That's a, I know for some of you, you're like, no way, I, I can't, some of you are like, really, just now? But, um, <clears throat> so whenever I say, I, I have to be very careful because if I say anything about like social media or technology in any way, I, I come across sounding like uh, like I'm, I'm shaking my fist and yelling at the teeny boppers to get off my lawn or something like that, right? So, so I don't, I don't want to be that. But at the same time, I, I, I was thinking about this, and I was thinking about the idea of discipleship and being a disciple. And, and the idea of being influenced. There are a lot of influencers in our lives. And whether you're that's, you know, depending on your age, that, that can look very different for, for different people. For many of us, or for, for, um, for many people, that, that is through social media. Um, but it, it, for a lot of people, it's on television as well. And so whether it's, it's, I don't know, it's TikTok or it's CNN or it's Fox or whatever it is, there are voices speaking into your life. There are people who have influence in your life. There are people that you are following. Sometimes consciously, sometimes subconsciously. So here's my question. Who is influencing you? Whose disciple are you? Whose view of the good life is driving you? When you look at the world and you say, in order for me to be happy, I need X... Who is giving you that idea? Now, I know a big part of that is coming from inside of you, but there are voices speaking into your mind, into your heart, telling you this is what it looks like to be happy. This is what it looks like to be successful. Who are those voices for you? 
Who is it that influences the decisions you make? We've used the word um, liturgy to talk about our habits. The way that we just naturally go through our day and do things often without even thinking about what we are doing. How often is it our habit to, when we have quiet, when we have peace, when there's a moment of silence to reach for our phone or to, to turn on the television and hear or read someone speaking into our hearts? Speaking in, and what is that doing constantly? It's discipling us. It's telling us this is what life should be. This is what the good life is. And if our automatic movement in times of quiet is to turn to our phone or turn on our television and to be discipled by talking heads who have their conception of what the good life is. And if those are the people we look to and say, that's who I need to be like. See, the way disciples worked, the way discipleship worked in Jesus' day, to be a disciple meant that you followed someone so that you could listen to their teaching, but also watch their life. And that as you watch their life, you would imitate them so that you could become more like them, so that you could be shaped by what shaped them. To be a follower of Jesus, to be a disciple of Jesus, means to follow him in a way that you attempt to imitate, not just hearing what he says, but living the way he lived. Who is it in your life that you are watching, that you are listening to, that you are imitating, hoping that if you could be more like them, then you'd be happier? For many of us, it's not necessarily something, you know, online or on television. It's, it's friends we know. It's within our peer groups. Who have you surrounded yourself with that you look at and you say, if I could be more like them, if I could only have what they have, then I could be happy. Now, I am not saying in any way that the only way to find happiness is to remove yourself from all social interactions, never watch the news, never be online, just find yourself a a, a convent somewhere And spend all your time reading the Bible and praying, and then you'll find happiness. That's not at all what Jesus says, and so that's not at all what I'm trying to say. What I am asking is, who am I allowing, and who are you allowing, to have influence in your life? Who speaks into your life? Who is discipling you? Are the voices that have the most influence to you marked by a poverty of spirit, by mourning, by meekness, by a hunger and a thirst for righteousness, by mercy, by purity of heart, by a desire to make peace? Is that the influence on your life? And you would say, but okay, maybe my life doesn't look like that, but nobody I know looks like that. And if I were to seek and follow after Jesus, I would be very, very different. I might even be classified as weird. 
People might walk all over me. I might get trampled down. My voice might not get heard. Look at the last thing Jesus says in verse 10. Blessed are those... This makes no sense whatsoever to my mind, to my natural way of thinking. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, this is really hard, and we have to tread very lightly here, because what is often described as persecution in America today is nowhere near what Jesus is describing here. Okay? Like, people saying happy holidays at Starbucks is not, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, that's not persecution. Okay? So the stuff that we, like, get really upset and fired up about and want to fight, again, going back to, you know, being peacemakers, we want to fight about this stuff, you're persecuting me, you're persecuting me. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. What he is saying is that a life that is shaped more and more and more by being a disciple of Him, by following Him, is going to come into conflict with the cultures and values in your own heart and in the culture around you. And you will not necessarily have the kind of success that our culture holds up as being the ideal. And the decision that Jesus is underlining in verse 10 is the decision between success and fame and acclaim here and now or a belief, a hope set on being a member of the kingdom of heaven. Which one is more valuable? And Jesus, and again, this is where we have to ask, do we trust Jesus as authoritative? Jesus is saying that following him, that being his disciple, that being a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, that being a child of God is better, is better than anything else that you could be chasing after. We have in our minds an idea of what success and happiness looks like. And Jesus says, I'm sorry, Jesus says we're wrong. That success and happiness looks vastly different. And if we want it, the only way to get there is to trust fully in Him. And it's going to look different, it's going to feel different, and at times it's going to be really hard. But it's so much better. So much better. So whose authority, to go back to where we started, whose authority do we trust? Our own? What our hearts tell us? What everyone around us says? Or do we trust in the authority of the one who's truly in control of this world? Let's pray. We're going to share communion together. Would you bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, God, you're good. God, you're so good to us. We do not deserve anything. And yet, in your love and your mercy, 
You have offered us everything. And you pursue us and you, you hold out to us this promise, this hope of a good life. And we're so quick to reject it and to believe that we can figure out a better way. So God, I'm praying today, I'm asking today, please, increase our faith to trust in you instead of ourselves. Increase our view of you, of your goodness, of your greatness, of your glory, as greater than anything we could ever achieve here on earth. And God, please, transform our hearts, change our desires, so that we follow after you, so that we hunger and thirst for your righteousness in our own hearts and in the world around us. Let us be marked by your love, even when it looks so strange to everyone else. Let us rest in the comfort of your goodness. In your name I pray. Amen.